You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to another edition of the Prologue on America's Web Radio. This is a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not be familiar with yet. My name is Doug Dahlgren, and I'll be your host for this next hour. I'm an author myself. I have eight fiction novels that are available, action thrillers that you might just enjoy if you take a look at them. They're available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Books A Million online sites. And you can also go to my website, DougDahlgren.com, and get just about all the information you'd care to have about my work and myself. Now, we call this show the prologue because that's exactly what it is. It's an introduction. And while those introductions are mainly to writers, we love to bring you interesting people with a good story to tell. And many of those are from other fields and other endeavors besides just writing. If you or someone you know has a book or that interesting story that just needs to be told, please reach out to me through email. And there's two ways you can do that. There's Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com or Doug at DougDahlgren.com. Love to speak with you or them about them being a future guest on the program. Our author this hour is a returning guest, and we're very proud of that. Back on October 16th of 2015, he brought us his terrific book based on true events in his family's history. That book, A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff, is doing quite well. And you can go back anytime you'd like and listen to that interview through the show's archives. Just simply select October 16th and Dr. William Rawlings, and you'll be able to listen to it. Now, the guest's research and investigations for that particular book uncovered information that led him to write his current offering, an in-depth study of the rise or second coming of a group whose very name stirs hatred and division. Before I bring him on, I want to remember to recognize two groups in our audience that we're very proud that we have as listeners. First, our folks serving in the armed forces of this country, wherever they may be in the world. They're working hard to keep us safe back home so we can live our lives as we so very often take for granted. Freedom isn't free, people. It is bought and paid for daily by the men and women in uniform. Don't forget it. I thank each of you for what you do. Now, we also want to remember and mention our first responders who are here at home in different towns and municipalities, wherever that may be. That's those police, fire, EMT personnel who rush to our aid when we need their help. Thank them for being where they are, and we thank them for what they do. Now, many organizations have come and gone in the history of this country. Some leave a lasting legacy, and others leave absolutely nothing. Some stir the hearts of man with thoughts of bravery and accomplishment. Some stir remembrances of that hatred and division that we mentioned earlier. One such organization, though thought of as unitary uh, or thought of unitarily, has actually had several incarnations. Its name brings vitriolic responses and angry looks from many. The mere mention of it can put a speaker on the defense. That organization or group, as I speak of, was the Ku Klux Klan. Its origins go back to 1860 in Reconstruction. Some say it lingers today. But is this the same organization that was started so many years ago? 
What do we know about it and the different phases of its existence? Our author today discovered that the correct answer to that is very little. He set out to correct that misinformation, and he zeroes in on the error or the era of the 1920s. That author is Dr. William Rawlings, his book, The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire, and this is your prologue. Some 50 years after the Civil War had ended, a one-time Methodist minister formed a fraternal order that he called the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. This group, sharing little but its name from the infamous predecessors, co-opted dress and actions from that Reconstruction era clan while attempting mainly to make money any way they could. The group dabbled and meddled in politics, including a failed attempt to influence a 1924 presidential election. And though it had spread across the country and grown to nearly 5 million members, it fizzled out and all but disappeared in the early 1930s. Our author came across a reference to this group while preparing to write a story about a relative from that period of history. He found that very little factual knowledge existed about the 1920 incarnation of the Invisible Empire, and after he finished his historical book, A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff, he set out to learn the truth about this controversial organization. That research is now available to us. The book is titled The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire, and its author, Dr. William Rawlings, is with us this hour. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Doug. It's an honor to be here. Well, we thank you for coming back. It's a real pleasure to speak with you again. Now, right out of the blocks, this book is not a rehash of old material about the Ku Klux Klan, is it? No, absolutely not. Uh, much of what's in this book was drawn from new things that are available now, specifically newspapers that are available online and other other data of a magazine, uh, current events from the 1920s that really have changed in many ways the story of the Klan. Now, we've teased a couple of times uh, that your interest and motivation for writing this book came from digging into your own family's history. Uh, about that other book we mentioned, A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff. Would you care to real quick share that story of Uncle Charlie and the Klan that got you involved in this study? Well, well it's, not a good, it's, it's not a fun story to share, so it was certainly for Uncle Charlie. But uh, my previous book, uh, A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff, was about... Uh, uh, Charles Graves Rawlings, my great-uncle, my grandfather's brother, who in 1920 was one of the wealthiest men in the state of Georgia and by 1925 was serving a life sentence for murder. It's a fascinating tale, but in the process, Uncle Charlie was a bit of a, uh, shall we say, a philanderer. He sort of uh, made the Klan angry. This was in the early 1920s, probably 1921, 1922. They warned him to re uh, re reform his ways, and when they didn't, when he did not, they waylaid him and castrated him. It was a horrible situation. Um, in fact, it was so so terrific that I uh, got to reading about the Klan of the 1920s and really discovered an entire world that has not been explored by the vast majority of Americans. It's a fascinating tale and turned into this book from Mercer University Press, The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire. The precepts that most of us have about the Klan are that it was primarily Southern and mostly an anti-black or racist organization. But this particular period and incarnation really didn't focus on that, did they? 
No, they didn't. And, and to a degree, you need to understand that there have been three separate and distinct incarnations of the Klan. The Klan there was no single Klan in the Reconstruction era. There were a number of organizations that called themselves the various things, the Knights of White Camellia, the Red Shirts, the White Band, etc. These were collectively known as the Ku Klux Movement. They uh, went out of business in the 1870s under federal prosecution. Some 50 years after the end of the Civil War, William Simmons started a beneficial fraternal order that he named the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. This list had lasted until 1944. Then they went out of business, and then there were a group of people that have sprung up in the post-World War II era that called themselves the Ku Klux Klan. Basically, they're all unrelated in, ter- uh, in terms of purpose, organization, and so forth. About the only thing they share in common is the name. Now, you mentioned the three distinct and separate periods of Klan activity. Break those down a little bit more in detail for us, what, what they were about and when they were active. The, the Klan, uh, the, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, was a small organization formed in, um, in Pulaski, Tennessee in 1865 or 1866. With the beginning of radical reconstruction in 1867, they morphed into a, uh, a regulatory or order which soon became a terrorist organization. The radical reconstruction for those students of history in the audience was one in which the uh, former Confederates in the South were disenfranchised and the vote was given to the back three slaves. This angered many in the South. It was also a period of social turmoil with a lot of lawlessness and vigilante activity. The Klan adopted the role of a self-anointed regulatory body. But in the process of doing so, they intimidated, they flogged, and they often murdered. They were, by any definition, as I said, a terrorist organization. And under uh, vigorous federal prosecution, they kind of went out of business, as I said, in the early uh, early 1870s. the Klan's reputation was rehabilitated uh, in many respects in a manner similar to what we refer to as the greatest generation some some 50 years after the end of World War II. We talked about the people that served um, that served in World War II, and uh, some 50 years after the end of the Civil War, the Klan had suddenly morphed from a terrorist organization to people who had somehow saved the South. Um, so a fellow named William Simmons that we'll discuss in a moment, started a fraternal order similar to the Elks, the uh, Masons, the Knights of Pythias, and others. This uh, lasted for a few years, and when it went out of business, the third set of clans or groups of people that primarily are properly referred to as hate groups, they're white supremacist organizations, and they really fall pretty far from the American mainstream. The group of the 1920s, though, was very much a mainstream order, or at least a very near to the American mainstream for a few years. Now, your book covers that middle period, the Klan of the 1920s. How did you go about sourcing, and who did you go to to get information about this period? Well, clearly you can't speak to anyone because anybody who was anybody of that era would be dead, I'm sure. But the, the primary sources were... Um, uh, own newspapers, and there's a tremendous number of them online now that weren't even 10 or 15 years ago. There are also a number of uh, Internet sites. Um, the There were a number of library collections, for example, the manuscript and rare book libraries of Emory University, of the University of Georgia, the Atlanta History Center, all provided important contributions. And then others uh, 
for example, the Middle Tennessee State University has a music collection. They have clan-related music, believe it or not, and so I got something from there. So, uh, and, and, and some of my private individuals had contributed things that when their fathers or grandfathers were members of the clan. It's one of those things that when you start digging, you just uh, have to take another shovel load and keep going. Oh, oh you do. You do. You, you, you dig, and one thing leads to another, that leads to another, and pretty soon you find some gold at the bottom of the hole. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we're talking with Dr. William Rawlings. This book is The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire. Dr. Rawlings, tell the folks where they can find out more about you and your book. To find out more about me, you're welcome to go to my website, which is simply my name, uh, williamrawlings.com, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-R-A-W-L-I-N-G-S.com. Uh, to purchase the book, it's uh, available at... Um, on Amazon, um, both in hardcover format and in Kindle format. It's available from Barnes & Noble in hardcover format and in Nook format. And it's really widely available from a number of other standard book sources on the Internet. Uh, in fact, you can buy it in Japan and England and several other places around the world, at least from what I've seen. Very good. Again, our guest, Dr. William Rawlings. This book is The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire, and we're going to be back with more after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to the prologue on America's Web Radio. We're pleased to have a returning guest this morning. Dr. William Rawlings is here to talk about his book, The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire, better known to many as the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, Dr. Rawlings, you had mentioned William Joseph Simmons uh, briefly there before we started. Who is William Joseph Simmons, or who was he? Uh, Joe Simmons was a gentleman who was born in North Alabama a number of years ago when he was in his 30s. Uh, by the time he was in his 30s, he had managed to fail at several things. He, he was a failed Methodist minister. He'd worked as a salesman. He'd done this and that. Uh, the middle part of the decade of the 20th, the second decade of the 20th century, around 1914, found him working as an organizer for Woodman, the Woodman of the World. Now, we think of the Woodman of the World today as being an insurance company, but it was, in, in its day, uh, a 
fraternal order like many uh, of, the, of the day. And, and Simmons realized that uh, if he started his own fraternal order, he could make a lot of money because uh, uh, in those days prior to the social safety net, um, people were moving to the city that didn't know anybody, and joining a fraternal order was a good way to meet them. In the 19, in 1920, for example, it was estimated that one out of every two American citizens belonged to a beneficial fraternal order of some sort. So someone said, gee, I think I want to start a fraternal order. I can make a little money at it and support myself. And he cast about for a name, and everyone had sort of heard the name the Ku Klux Klan because a movie, The Birth of a Nation, had made it rather famous. The Birth of a Nation was the first great blockbuster. So he named his order the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, and allegedly it was incorporated the patriotism and bravery of the Civil War-era terrorist group, and I have no idea why anybody in their right mind would name a fraternal order for a terrorist group, but he did. Things uh, back in, let's say, this is over 100 years ago, and yeah. society was probably something we wouldn't recognize back then, but was uh, Mr. Simmons, was he a racist, as we think of that term today? I think I think that is reasonable to say, but you have to understand that America uh, historically uh, adopted an attitude that we all today would refer to as racist. We're all familiar with with the um, uh, Supreme Court case Plessy versus Ferguson that that created the separate but equal doctrine. Uh, this persisted up until the Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954. Uh, America was a, was a racist country at that time, and and. Uh, Simmons channeled this and other things. Um, he expressed his own philosophy, which I think most would probably disagree with today. But in some ways, it probably represented the American mainstream thought in the early part of the 20th century. Now, his version of the Klan had a specific agenda, didn't it? I know it. Yeah, I, I don't think it did. I think his version of the Klan was more. His purpose in forming the, the, the order in the 1915 was not so much to promote an agenda as it was to make money. I think he would have probably uh, started a, a, a organization that loved ice cream and cake if he could have made uh, made money from it. In this case, he, he he said, well, everybody's heard of the Ku Klux Klan, so we're going to call it the Ku Klux Klan, and we're going to say it's an uber-American organization. We stand for 100% Americanism and God and country and things like this. It was a generic a generic sort of thing. Well, yeah, and I, I apologize for misusing the word, but to a lot of people today, uh, making money is an agenda, so... <laughs> Well, that was my it, it, it is, but but I, I think I think the point to be made here is that that Simmons did not find found the Klan for the purpose of of changing America initially, or for the purpose of promoting uh, racial hatred, or for the purpose of this or that. He founded the Klan as a money making scheme. Period. Exactly, and folks, I want you to remember that right there because we're going to get to something in a couple of minutes that's going to highlight that or the hypocrisy of it. <clears throat> uh, he was, as you mentioned, an insurance salesman, and didn't that play that that drive to sell more insurance? Didn't that actually enter into this new organization? Oh, of course it did. Of course it did. You have to remember that you know in the year nineteen fourteen, nineteen fifteen, this was before the social safety net. There was no. Um, there was no Social Security fallback on. There was no old age pension, at least on a, a state or, or federal basis. 
So people had to look either to their families or to other organizations to support them. The insurance industry was very important. There were many, one of the purposes of the, quote, beneficial, end quote, uh, fraternal orders was to sell insurance for their members and to take care of widows and orphans. You could buy your insurance through the, through the insurance company. Hence, Woodman of the World today is known as an insurance company, but it started as a fraternal order. And he, and not, in addition to selling insurance, you could also sell regalia, you had membership fees, as you moved up in the organization you had to pay a little membership to go from one fee to go from one level to the other. There were potentially millions of dollars to be made in an era when the average American family and the average American was making less than a thousand dollars a year. Now we mentioned the the movie, The Big Blockbuster, The Birth of a Nation. Uh, there were also a couple other factors that enter into this. Something called the Lost Cause Movement and American fraternalism movement. Discuss those real quick for us. Tell us how those entered into this. The, the, the Lost Cause movement is, is a well-defined uh, movement, in the, particularly in the South in the, latter, in the latter part of the 19th century and certainly early part of the 20th century, that sought to rewrite the history of the Civil War. Yes, we in the South lost the Civil War, but in fact it wasn't our fault. It sought to say the Civil War was fought over slavery, uh, states' rights, not over slavery. There, there were a number of other things. But the, but the bottom line here, as it, as it applies to the Klan, was the fact that the, the Civil the Lost Cause movement glorified the Ku Klux Klan as a resistance organization. For example, we all know about the McKee in France during World War II. Uh, their job was killing German soldiers and sympathizers. They were certainly a terrorist organization, yet we say they're great. We recall the Sicarii in ancient Judea that, that knifed Roman soldiers that were occupying the area, the, uh, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq. I mean, depending on which side of the fence you're on, remember, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Um, the American fraternalism movement was a parallel movement where in the latter third of the 19th century and well up through the 1920s, Many Americans belonged to secret fraternal orders. They sort of died out in the 1920s and 1930s because of a number of things, including ill-advised investments in insurance products. They, the Great Depression put a lot of them out of order, out of business, I mean. And they were replaced by the midday businessmen's clubs, such as the Rotary Club, the Lions Club, the Kiwanis, the Optimist Club. All those were formed, and those four were formed in the, latter, in the second decade of the 20th century and ended up replacing, in many respects, the secret orders that existed before them. The movie a Birth of, uh, The Birth of a Nation struck a chord with millions of people when it came out in 1915, and uh, Simmons noticed this, uh, and he put what he learned to great use. What all did he co-opt from that movie and put into his organization? The Klan of the 1860s had no regalia and no symbol. He totally and completely grabbed the Klan, quote, uniforms, the hooded uniform, and the Burning Cross. The Burning Cross was nothing but a movie prop, and it's become one of the most potent hate symbols in modern America. It is nothing but a movie prop, and uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's ironic and sad at the same time. Uh, the, it was in the used by the director of the movie, David Griffith, uh, as a uh, li as a visual device, which was quite good. The Klan was portrayed in the movie as the saviors of the day. Their symbol was a burning cross. So, so someone said, "Oh, okay, we'll make this the symbol of the new Ku Klux Klan, a movie prop." Now we've been talking about the actual reasons that Simmons came up with the idea for this revision of the Klan. Uh, some years later. He was asked 
to state his reasoning for reviving the order of the Invisible Empire. And I want to read, with y'all's permission, I want to read what he said. And this is quoting from your book on page 44 for anybody who might have a copy. <clears throat> and I'm quoting Mr. Simmons. To establish a fraternal, patriotic, secret order for the purpose of memorializing the great heroes of our national history, inculcating and teaching practical fraternity among men, to teach and encourage a fervent practical patriotism toward our country, and to destroy from the hearts of men the Mason-Dixon line and build thereupon a great American solidarity and a distinctive national conscience which our country sorely stands in need of. Now that sounds a little different from what uh, he actually was going about. Uh, talk about that for us a little bit. Well, I think the first thing you have to say is how could any any honest American disagree with what he said? It's a very good generic statement. But the truth of the matter is, and, I, and I, again, I'll, you quoted one thing. I'll quote another page in my book from page 259 when I talk about what was the Klan. This is a quote that, the philosophy of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan was less of a unitary value system than it was a hodgepodge of generic statements designed to appeal to a significant segment of American society. The details and implementation of this philosophy changed over time and in response to ambient social and political conditions. In other words, they'd say whatever they needed to say to get members because members meant money. And, uh, uh, you know, of course the Klan, I mean, Simmons... Simmons' words sound very powerful and very good, but once you got to be a member of the Klan, they, their actions were quite different. Well, it, it, it was a money-making scheme to, to say the, you know, the very least about it, and uh, we'll talk a little bit probably in the next section here about uh, Edward Young Clark and Elizabeth Tyler, but their hands-on with this thing actually took things a step further. These garbs were specialized. You couldn't just wear a sheet. You had to wear a particular sheet. You had to wear a particular color and a particular hood. And actually, to control that, they basically franchised these things, the construction, the making, and the selling of these robes, uh, like you would uh, if you were starting a McDonald's. And uh, th this was more of the ways that they made money. Isn't that the truth? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you know... Um First of all, you had to pay a, quote, collect token, end quote, which was the uh, entry fee into the Klan. You had to buy your Klan-approved regalia, the uniform, which had to be bought through the Klan. It was not, they, they owned the copyright on it. It couldn't be made elsewhere, apparently. Uh, if you wanted Klan jewelry, you had to buy Klan jewelry, and there was a good bit of that. If you wanted to buy Klan-sponsored insurance, for example, the Klan later, uh, in 1924, set up the Empire Mutual Life Insurance Company. I guess that means Invisible Empire. Empire Mutual Life Insurance Company, which, uh, you know, the Prudential has the Rock of Gibraltar as its symbol. The Empire Mutual Life Insurance Company had Stone Mountain as its symbol. So so there were there were a number of money-making schemes The the... the Again, to use the trite term bottom line, the bottom line was that millions of dollars flowed into Klan headquarters in Atlanta. Absolutely. Uh, today, I don't think that you'd be able, with communications the way they are, uh, I don't think you'd be able to pull this off like you were able to 100 years ago. Oh, of course not. Of course not, no. no. Information is more readily available, and, and, of course, they created this symbol of what they thought the Klan would be, and people bought into it. Uh, Dr. Rawlings, tell the folks again, the book is The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire. Tell the people out there where they can find out more about this book and you and where they can order their own. Um, again, I, I urge uh, uh, 
listeners to go to my website, WilliamRawlings.com, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-R-A-W-L-I-N-G-S.com, and you can get the book from all the usual outlets in both a digital and hardcover edition. I recommend Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com where you can get it for Nook and Kindle, and there are a number of other outlets that can be purchased online. Plus, of course, you can have it get, get order it from your local bookstore. You will be very impressed by just the detail that uh, this book contains, the way it was put together. It's done a very fascinating job in studying this subject and getting everything lined up for you. So, uh, Dr. William Rawlings, The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire, we're here on the prologue, and we will be back with more after these short messages. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to the prologue. We're here this morning with Dr. William Rawlings. The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire is the book he is bringing to us this morning. We've been talking about uh, the Reverend... Simmons and his uh, co-opting of items from the movie Birth of a Nation and what he really was up to, uh, the, the, they went to a lot of trouble to reestablish this thing and, and using all the uh, visuals and such that D.W. Griffith had used in his movie. In fact, the rebirth of the Klan is noted as being on Thanksgiving night of 1915 on top of Stone Mountain in DeKalb County, Georgia. Uh, that mountain was used for, for quite a number of revivals of the Klan uh, through the years, was it not, sir? It, it, it was. I think the, the, the Klan continued to have meetings at Stone Mountain up until it was purchased by the state, I believe, in the 1950s. I'm not an expert on that. There's an excellent um, book on, this, on Stone Mountain called Carved in Stone by David Freeman from Mercy University Press about 15 or 20 years ago that gives the details of, of the history of Stone Mountain. 
the venerable family was uh, was the family that actually owned that land and owned the mountain back at that time. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about them? Yeah, um, the the Venables, uh, one of one of the older Venables at the time was was one of the founding members of the clan, and he um, he was the one who gave the permission to to the clan to use the top of the mountain for their ceremonies on a regular and continuing basis. Um, the this gets a little bit complicated because you bring in the history of Stone Mountain and. Uh, the more interesting modern issue is the uh, stone mountain carving. Would you like me to say a few words about that? You absolutely. This is your hour. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think one of the things that we we see today is there've been a lot of protest about uh, monuments of the lost cause in general, and uh, there've been protests about the stone mountain carving. And there's a vague connection in people's minds between Stone Mountain and and the Ku Klux Klan. Well, let, let me let me get this straight. The clan, the clan, the second clan was founded or had its initial ceremony on top of Stone Mountain in 1915. But there was no other major direct connection other than that. A parallel connection is that when in 1915, unrelated to the clan but related to the Venable family, was the fact that uh, America's most famous sculptor of the day, a guy named Gutzon Borglum, was hired to. Uh, do a Stone Mountain memorial carving, uh, idolizing the heroes of the Confederacy. He worked on this for about ten years. It got very little done. He was eventually fired. Uh, his uh, his uh, uh, carving was blast dynamited off the side of the mountain, and uh, another sculptor started, and he he fell by the wayside. It was finally completed in the 1960s. But Gutzon Borglum was the fellow who went on to carve. Uh, Mount Rushmore. When he was in Atlanta, and under the influence of Mr. Venable, he became a member of the ruling council of the Ku Klux Klan, the Concilium. So the original sculptor of the of the Stone Mountain Memorial Carving was was a prominent member of the Klan. For those that are interested, the, uh, I believe the next issue of Georgia Back Roads magazine, which is a fine quarterly magazine published by Dan Roper, an excellent man excellent magazine, which I believe will be out next month. It's going to have an article I wrote called Gutzon Borglum and the Lost Stone Mountain Confederate Carving. That will have a lot about the carving, about Stone Mountain, and also the somewhat tenuous connection with the Klan. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you kind of caught me there. I didn't know where you were going to stop. Uh, Dan Roper and his publication are indeed something that, folks, if you live anywhere near Georgia, you need to be getting this particular magazine. It is it is uh, just a wonderfully done. It is all submissions from writers. They don't have any staff writers on duty. It's people like Dr. Rawlings that submit works to it. And uh, you you tell them again. You know him personally, Dr. Rawlings. So tell the folks again what magazine we're talking about. We're talking about Georgia Bat Roads Magazine. Now there's a. a, a, a Georgia Public Radio program called Georgia Backroads. This is Georgia Backroads magazine. Just, just uh, you can find that by a simple internet search. Dan Roper is a publisher. It's a quarterly magazine that really has fascinating articles. If you're interested in history, particularly in Georgia history, that span the entire spectrum from photographic pieces to long history pieces and everything in between. Travel pieces. I, I look forward to my issue arriving every quarter. 
Oh, we do too here. Georgia Backroads Magazine and folks, there's information online about it. If you're not a subscriber, uh, it's not expensive. Look into it and uh, get involved with it. Getting back to our subject here, uh, the, the Klan of the 20s, it was actually formed, as we've been discussing, in 1915, and five years later it had all but failed. Uh, then suddenly there was uh, a growth spurt after that, and it, it shot from that mere 2,000 members that it had as it was failing to over 5 million five years later. Uh, who and what were the cause of that? Well, Simmons founded the Klan in 1915, but by all reports he was not a very good organizer. So after five years, uh, nearly five years of, of, of work, he had gotten perhaps 2,000 members of the Klan in Georgia and Alabama, and he was perennially short of money. He was, in essence, failing. So he approached a fellow named Edward Young Clark and his business associate and also his girlfriend uh, uh, named Elizabeth Tyler. Clark and Tyler were approached to do a uh, membership drive for the Klan, and they said, gee, you know, we're we, we not sure that we want to get involved in this, it would take away from our regular business, but tell you what, let's do. We will we will become the in-house recruiting arm of the Klan. Uh, for every $10 collect token, the admission fee that people pay to join the Klan, we'll take 8 bucks and we'll pay all the expenses and we'll give you 2 bucks. Now that may seem bad because someone said, gee, $2 out of 10, but he was failing and he was pretty desperate, so he said, okay, I'll take the deal. Well, the Klan in, in June 1920 had maybe 2,000 members, and by September 1921 had risen to 100,000 members, had gone up 50 times. And the reason was that Clark, no matter what you might say for him was, about him, was a marketing genius. He set the Klan up as a pyramidal marketing scheme, like Amway or Tupperware. And if you don't remember anything else about the Klan, it is probably one of the... the that one of the most successful marketing efforts in all of American history. In fact, there's a book that features the marketing of the Ku Klux Klan as a success story. Um, the, he sent out Klegals, or recruiters, um, throughout the nation. Um, the, uh, of the $10, the Klegals kept four, the export was passed on up the line, and then finally $2 of the $10 went to Simmons. Uh, initially, the Klan was an indolent Southern group. It spread for it was in Georgia and Alabama in 1920. It spread throughout the South, and at its peak around 1925, the Klan was primarily a Northern Midwestern organization uh, re related to effective marketing. Indiana, for example, was a Klan fiefdom. At its peak, the prime Klan cities were Chicago, Indianapolis, Philadelphia, and Detroit. Well, he quickly learned uh, through uh, the work of Mr. Clark and Ms. Tyler that 20% uh, of something was a whole lot better than 0% of nothing. It? It, it was. And then the other thing that I, I need to talk about is about the, uh, the the Klan had an evil side to it. You know, Uncle Charlie was an example of that. The Klan, the Klan particularly in the South, began to exert vigilante-type organizations. Again, referring to Georgia Back Roads magazine, the winter issue of last year, 2015, has an article on the reign of terror of the Ku Klux Klan in Macon that talks about how the Klan kidnapped and flogged people on, uh, off the street. But these, uh, there was an attempt by the, new, by the New York world, a Pulitzer newspaper, to expose the Klan for what it was. And in September 1921, they ran a 21-part a, a series exposing the true corrupt, evil nature of the Klan. And this led to congressional hearings in October 1921. 
the net result of these two things was an explosive growth in Klan membership. It had gone from 2,000 in 1920 to approximately 100,000 in September 1921 to more than a million by a year later, by the fall of 1922. And it continued to increase in publicity. And the reason was was the the tenor of the times. The Klan offered action and words, and so people wanted to join, despite the fact they knew it may have been corrupt. You mentioned the activities uh, that caught up with Uncle Charlie. Now, these things weren't necessarily uh, coming from a central organization at that time. Weren't there many factions that kind of used the basic ideas that were established and went off on their own tangents? A- absolutely. If you talk to the Klan, the Klan was a very well-organized, centrally-run fraternal order, nothing more. I mean, they had regular meetings, and they sang songs like you would at a Rotary Club meeting, which they did wear those funny hoods and had little uh, secret handshakes. But... but um, the truth of the matter is that within clans there was often a vigilance committee, so-called vigilance committee. And, for example, aggrieved wives would send letters to the to the clan uh, saying, my husband is cheating on me, will you do something about it? And the clan would frequently approach him and say, hey, buddy, you better straighten up or bad things are going to happen. And if he didn't listen, he would frequently be taken out and flogged. In Macon, for example, they kidnapped physicians off the street and beat them for... Um, problems of marital infidelity pretty horrific that are, oh yeah yeah the original clan now going back to reconstruction periods that was a grassroots movement while this 1920s version it's important for folks to understand about your book this really was a fraternal order and explain again for everybody what the difference is there i know some people get lost in the minutia but it was quite a different organization okay the clan, the clan, the original Ku Klux Klans, and I say there are multiple ones, of the 1860s era were organizations that sprang up in response to the turmoil after the Civil War, and particularly the occupation of federal troops. The southern governments were declared illegal. The, the, the so-called elected governments of the state at the time were basically installed under, at the bayonet point uh, under the Yankee troops, and resistance organizations called the Klan arose. That, they went out of business in the 1870s. The Klan of, of the 1920s, and where, when it was in its peak, founded in 1915, was a fraternal order like the Masons, um, except they were primarily corrupt and primarily money-seeking, and they also had a violent side to them, particularly in the South. Um, and despite this, they, they, at its peak, had as many as 5 million members. And we'll get talk, talking about that a little bit later on, but uh, they, at its peak, they wanted to move from, from the, the money was always an issue, but then they wanted to move into politics. That was a kind of a failed effort, wasn't it? <laughs> Well, it, it, well. it, it may, or, may or may not have been a failed effort. For example, uh, Governor Thomas Hardwick uh, was a, an opponent of the Klan. He was, he, according to the New York Times, the worst electoral defeat in Georgia history was delivered to Governor Hardwick by a guy named uh, Clifford Walker. Klan, the Klan supported Clifford Walker. It turned out later, after Walker had been in office for a year or two, that he was, in fact, a Klan member. So Georgia had Georgia's governors were members of the Ku Klux Klan for a number of years, as was the mayor of Atlanta and most of Atlanta City Council in the early 1920s. Um, so it did have its effect. We're oh, here yes. this morning. We're here this morning with Dr. William Rawlings. We're talking about his book, 
the second coming of the Invisible Empire. And we're going to be back with more after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we are back. We're here again this morning with Dr. William Rawlings. He's bringing us his second book, Major Work, The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire. You may remember Dr. Rawlings from last October when he brought to us a killing on Ringjaw Bluff, and everyone enjoyed that book. This is a book that he became interested in the topic while researching that initial book, The Killing on Ringjaw Bluff, about an uncle who had been, uh, let's say, had a run-in with the clan of that period, and Dr. Rawlings set out to learn more about it. Uh, Now, there were very different, significant differences between the original clan and the clan of the 20s, but a lot of people tend to just sneer at that, and they sneer overall at the suggestion of a book about the clan, and I think that'd be a mistake on their part. Who would you suggest is the target audience for this book? I think I think anybody that is interested in American history should read this book. It is it is incredibly revealing, and and I say that in the sense that it was incredibly revealing to me as I was doing the research for the book. It just absolutely opened my eyes to the to the era of the nineteen twenties. I I believe that era in this nation, and particularly in the state of Georgia, was one of the most pivotal areas in in our shared history. Um, I think also people that are interested in political movements. Uh, somebody mentioned the other day that it would make a great course in sociology. I, I believe that's entirely correct. You could teach a course of sociology based entirely on the Klan, on the Klan of the 1920s, and particularly when you get into politics and, and movements. Could I say a little bit now about why the Klan grew so much in the early 1920s? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you, you have to look at the era, and, and in many ways it's similar to today. I, I read the other day that a current today's um, survey said that roughly 70% of Americans believe we're on the, this country's in the wrong direction, that we're on the road to perdition. 
And in, in the early 1920s, it was very much the same thing. There were a number of changes societally in the post-World War I era. America was becoming a, an urban country, uh, shifting from a rural country. The, uh, the cities were growing. There was a labor turmoil, social turmoil, and so forth. And what the Klan did, the Klan said, listen, we are not going to put up with this. We offer action. Um, and, and that was appealing to many people. In, in many ways, the Klan movement was similar to other movements in, in the world at the time. Do you remember Hitler's push in Germany? It was in 1923 when the Klan was near its peak here, and Mussolini was rising in Italy. Um, in many ways, the Klan was similar to those movements, uh, although with more of a populist tone in America. It, um, in 1922... William Simmons, the founder of the Klan, was deposed in an in-house coup, as it were, and a fellow named uh, Hiram uh, Wesley Evans took over. He was a former dentist from Dallas. Wesley Evans wanted to take the Klan in the direction of a political force, so he moved the Klan's offices from Atlanta to Washington and set up a lobbying office in Washington. Uh, the Klan had a fairly good support, and a bit of support in Congress at the time. Uh, it was Evans' hope to elect a Klansman as president, or barring this, someone who supported the Klan's agenda. They were very successful in the state of Indiana, which uh, was basically became a Klan fiefdom. Uh, elected officials at all levels were members of and or supported the Klan. But where it came to head, though, was with the Democratic Convention of 1924. A very interesting occurrence. Um, the Democratic Convention of that year holds the record for being the longest uh, presidential nominating convention in American history and also the most ballots. I, ballots. I believe there were 103 or 109 ballots before they finally got a nominee. And this was because the Klan of the Klan, which was heavily represented among the delegates to the convention, and fought mightily to get a Klan, uh, an, an agenda, a stated agenda, the Democratic platform plank that supported the aims of the Klan. They failed. They failed. Um, this was considered by Evans an initially a small setback. He hoped to, to revive things, but that probably was about the beginning of the decline of the Klan. The, uh, the, the Klan and, and different groups like that, you mentioned that they, they tend to reoccur or occur at moments when society is disappointed or there's, there's a void. There's something that needs to be filled in the hearts of people, and there's always other people who are going to be willing to take advantage of that, whether it be to the good or the bad. Uh, is that the blame of the organizations that step in, or should most of the blame be on the leadership that allowed those conditions to exist in the first place? I think it's a combination, but I think things get out of hand. For example, I mentioned the Nazi movement in Germany and the, uh, the fascist movement in Italy of the same era. And in, 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 in the book, I, in, the, in the end, the summary part of the book, I make, I make comparisons between the Klan and these two very horrific orders. You know, in the 1920s and the 1930s, America was still exploring various options. They had the Great Recession in the South and the Great Depression. So the Roosevelt administration and others looked to Soviet, uh, Soviet Russia as a possible example of, of, of the way we should go. 
uh, people on the other end of the stream in Germany and in Italy, you had the fascist movements. All of these were being, this was, you have to remember, this was before World War II and before the true nature of communism, fascism, Nazism, and so forth became evident. It was pretty horrific to tell here in ex- extremes, but, but bad times produce bad options. Bad times produce strange leaders. And in America today, we have uh, a lot of unhappiness at the population at large, and so we have a number of uh, candidates at all levels that, that say that we're anti-establishment, we want to change things. Uh, I, I think it's history simply repeating itself. The uh, things of this nature, they tend to have a short shelf life, though, uh, and the Klan did wind down, uh, maybe not as quickly as a lot of us would have hoped, but, of course, there was another incarnation after World War II, but we're not really going to go into that too much. Tell us Still uh, concentrating on your book and, and the era that you were talking about, tell us real quick, who was Julian Harris? Julian Harris was the son of the beloved Joel Chandler Harris, who, as you know, was a writer for the Atlanta Constitution. He created the character Uncle Remus and was just a, a really uh, well-respected Southern writer who died at a fairly early age. His son, Julian Harris, was a newspaper man, a very distinguished newspaper man in his own right, lived in Atlanta for uh, much of his life. Um, in 1920, he became an owner, a part owner, and then eventually full owner of the Columbus Inquirer Sun. This was a, um, a prominent newspaper in the city of Columbus, Georgia. Uh, Harris uh, took a bold and uncompromising stand against the Klan. He, he was one of the few newspapers who was willing to call things as they were. He, he received death threats. His newspaper lost business because of this. But because of his bold stand for the Klan, he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1926 for his, uh, uh, for news, for his newspaper's and personal courage in opposing the Klan. He, um, he's remembered best for this, along with other things. He, he led a very long and distinguished life. Absolutely. Now, the book details and, and goes into uh, the story of the spiraling fall of this incarnation of the Klan. But I tell you what, what we're going to do is is we're going to let the folks buy this book and find out about that. What do you think? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I think it's 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 a fascinating story, to be truthful. I mean, it's not, it, and and I, and I think everybody, I, well, I won't say everybody, but most of the people who come up to me and say, "Gosh, I read your book and I really liked it," and the next thing they say is, "I learned so much. It, it wasn't the way I thought it was. It was a great book," and I say, "Oh, great! I'm glad you enjoyed it." You know. Well, yes, the book itself is very well sourced. And it's well documented, and and those resources are listed in an appendix in the back of the book. You've also included an index where facts, references, and characters can be researched and sought out and located as to where they appear by page number. Uh, You mentioned earlier the possibility uh, of a social-type class, a social studies class. I see it more as a political science book. Uh, Did you have any of this in mind while you were writing it? No, no, no. I, I don't. I didn't at the time, but but retrospectively, I think that's an excellent idea. Um, this is a this is truly a study in American politics of how a movement gets started and starts as one thing and becomes another before it eventually fails. Uh, there, there are a number of movements over the years in American history that uh, uh, have risen and fallen. Fallen, and if you can get over the initial revulsion of the name Ku Klux Klan and look at it as a political movement, it becomes a really 
a fascinating tale, as I said. Um, a political science class would be a perfect venue for this. I didn't I didn't think about it that way until I until I read the until I read the data and finished the book, and then I said, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Again, folks, the, the era of Dr. Rawlings' book is not the current Ku Klux Klan. It pops its little head up every now and then. Nor was it the original version. This is the second coming of the Invisible Empire about the Klan of the nineteen. 19- 1915 to 1930 era, and it's an era that few folks know a lot about, but of course knowledge is a very powerful thing, so we uh, urge you to get the book and look at it. Dr. Rawlings, before we close, is there anything you can think of that we've left out this morning? No, no, it's 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 been been really good talking with you, Doug, and I'm I'm glad to have the opportunity to discuss the book. It's it's as I say, it's a fascinating tale. It's it's one that's worth reading. I should say uh, just simply, the clans of the post World War II era are able to use the burning cross and adopt the hooded regalia because when the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, William Simmons Klan, officially went out of business in 1944, these things fell into the public domain. So anybody can start a clan now. There are only a few. Perhaps 5,000 members nationwide of groups that call themselves members of the Ku Klux Klan today, and they're generally hate groups. The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire by Dr. William Rawlings. Real quick, tell them again where they can find more about this book. You can go to my website, williamrawlings.com, or you can get it from amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, and multiple other outlets online, or order it from your local bookseller. I encourage that. It's available in both hardback and electronic editions. All right, listeners, uh, you've got it. It's in your court. Tell all your friends about the book, and also tell them, please, about our show and how they can listen to the free podcast simply by clicking on the archives at americaswebradio.com. And if you'd like to be a guest on the prologue, please remember those two email addresses, Doug at americaswebradio.com or Doug at DougDahlgren.com. Folks, I want to thank again our guest, Dr. William Rawlings, been a pleasure to have you on the prologue again sir thank you so much good luck with the book and when you get that next one i hope you'll come back again thanks so much all righty now for myself i'm doug dahlgren and for our guest this morning dr william rawlings i want to say be good to yourselves and each other read a book if it's not one of dr rawlings maybe you'll choose one of mine and i'll see you all again in just 167 hours take care You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.